everybody, this is Erin Hesse with the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to form substantive disciples for the local church. The episode that you're about to listen to is an interview that our lead pastor Nick Gibson did with Dr. Stanley Payne, a historian of European fascism. Dr. Payne was a professor at UW-Madison and is currently a professor emeritus. He is one of the most well-known modern theorists of fascism, and it was really great for him to join Pastor Nick for this interview. We want to give you a little bit of heads up on the content in this episode because it is quite academic. After all, Dr. Payne is the leading expert on the topic. Pastor Nick makes some helpful summaries throughout, and hopefully that will help make the episode more digestible for you. But we also want to say that given the context of our culture and society, we think it's really important to understand what fascism is and what it isn't and what it means for us today. So we hope that you'll enjoy listening to the interview and that you'll find it practically helpful. Hey everybody, we are with Dr. Stanley Payne today. Um, Dr. Payne is a professor at UW-Madison. He is retired. He's the author of two works on fascism that are primarily scholarly works. Um, I've read this part of the smaller one. It's very helpful. We're going to talk with him today a little bit about the history of fascism, how it connects to political and social movements, and then um, try to connect that with today as much as possible in relationship to how everybody's calling everybody else a fascist and what Christians might make of that. So, Welcome, Dr. Payne. We're really glad. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So now one of the, the things I noticed immediately on like in the first seven pages of your book was essentially one of the main arguments you wanted to make was it's just not that easy to identify a simple set of criteria and say this is fascism. Is that a good reading of mm, your view? That's correct. Political taxonomy is always very complicated. And since people like to try to label or define things in terms of something else, uh, they often make a lot of mistakes in doing things like that. Mm-hmm. And so you've, you said, you know, people want to say it's authoritarianism or it's nationalism or imperialism or something like that. And though a lot of these sorts of things that are within the accusations are true of certain fascist groups historically, they're also mostly true of lots of other groups. And there's lots of different mixtures. Is that fairly Certain. Right, right. Uh, the way I like to put it is, what is the political genus to which fascism belongs, the very broad set of political movements? So these are simply modern revolutionary movements, but there are all different kinds of modern revolutionary movements, communism, anarchism, and so on. So fascism is simply a species of this. Uh, and as happens in any uh, genus, there are overlaps, various kinds of characteristics um, a great many of the things characteristic of communism are also characteristic of fascism, and yet there are certain things that set fascism apart. So it might be helpful at the beginning for me to try to put a few of these things on the table, uh, not what are the common authoritarian and violent characteristics that fascism shares with communism and a variety of other very radical movements, but what are the things that are really specifically fascist and don't overlap. Great. That'd be great. Uh, Well, uh, to to begin with, fascism is a species of revolutionary nationalism. That doesn't tell us very much because even some communist regimes are revolutionary nationalist regimes. But uh, the difference in fascism has to do with its doctrine and values uh, and its cultural uh, and spiritual goals, which uh, are to carry out a kind of anthropological revolution, not necessarily, or even in most cases, in the German racial sense, uh, 
but uh, what some Italian historians have called it, anthropological revolution to make the new man. The new man is supposed to be different psychologically, emotionally, morally, and spiritually. Be a, a different kind of human being, not because he'll be physically very different from what has come before, but because he will have been trained in a new ethos and a new culture. So it's a revolution that is, first of all, a revolution of the spirit and not primarily a revolution of the economy. Uh, fascist culture does have certain distinctive characteristics separated from the left and also separated from the ordinary right. Uh, that is, it is a culture of what the philosophers at the beginning of the 20th century called vitalism uh, and uh, anti-materialism. Uh, that rejected rationalism in the common sense and rejected materialist doctrine. The 19th century had been a century of materialism and of science and of rationalism. Uh, fascist culture really began at the end of the 19th century with a kind of revolt against all of that. Uh, a different kind of philosophy that was a philosophy really more of the spirit and rejected materialism. The important thing, therefore, is willpower, the triumph of the will. That was the name of the most famous Nazi movie. Uh, and then uh, the other thing that is particularly fascist is not just violence, because lots of radical movements are violent. You could hardly be more violent than communists are. Uh, but a, a certain moralization or therapeutic approach to violence. That is, uh, the idea that violence was not merely necessary Every single political movement, except absolute pacifists, say that violence is sometimes a necessary evil, depending on the circumstances and the mode of practice. But violence, because to be violent in the proper way on behalf of your own group and your own nation is not merely good for them, but good for you. There's a certain kind of morality of violence in that violence makes you a better person. How does violence make you a better person? Because it teaches you to be self-sacrificing. You're willing to give yourself up for the greater good. You're committed to a cause. You're committed to an ideal. You help to unite the entire nation, therefore, in this kind of process. So there is a kind of therapeutic doctrine of violence in fascists that you don't get in most other kinds of uh, radical movements. Uh, communists, in a sense, are no different from others when they say, well, it's too bad we have to be so violent. Uh, it'll be necessary to kill a billion people, but that's just because it is a necessary means to a nonviolent end. Uh, the fascists don't take that approach. They uh, believe that the, the violent way of life uh, is a continuing form of life, that this is what makes a, a, a superior kind of militant and idealistic society. So those are the very specific things about fascism that you would set apart from other kinds of radical or revolutionary movements. Yeah, so one of the things that you make clear in the book is that there is a certain kind of um, sense of internal rebellion against that you, you said, you know, a lot of these fascist movements, their, their platform isn't as obvious. Sometimes they're not even very coherent until later. But what is very obvious is this kind of sense of a rejection of rationalism, a rejection of this sort of like older life that came before. One author about Mussolini said 
that Mussolini became a Marxist heretic when he realized that Marx said communism would just come about by determinism, that you would have agrarian societies and you'd have an, industrial, an industrialized society, then that would naturally evolve into a communist society. And at some point, communists realized that that's not how it works, that you have to, through virility and action and motion and revolution and so on, make the future you want. And you make some comments about virility and even an, a sense of a, a new masculinity even, that part of the, the morality of violence is to make a new man, to make that new man masculine and, and virile and strong and so on. And so Mussolini and Hitler both try to show that about themselves, that they were this like new virile, this new virile man, right? Mussolini more than Hitler. Yeah. Yeah, that's fundamental. Uh, and uh, the point that you made about Marxism, of course, is where Lenin came in. The fact that you're not going to get anywhere unless you uh, take the bull by the horns. Right. Uh, and, and in fact, these characteristics of Leninism were in many ways uh, predecessors of fascism, but they have a totally different philosophical package uh -huh. in Marxism-Leninism. Uh, which does, prevents them from being the same thing. Although when fascism appeared in Italy, the Russian communists said, well, here is a different kind of movement which uses the same kinds of tactics as communism. And that's correct. They use very m many of the same kinds of tactics, but with a different philosophical package and a, a different kind of uh, end goal, a different set of ideals. Uh, that really enclosed the package of tactics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things that gets talked about a lot in the United States is we talk a lot about left and right. And um, the, the news will just say people on the right, people on the far right, people on the far left. And most people kind of pick up on what people mean by that. But left and right has a whole history that goes back to continental Europe, which is referring to different things than it refers to today, and that has a real strange evolution. And in your book, you talk about how on the right in Europe, you had these sort of conservative, you had a radical right. Normally in America, we think of radicalism as fundamentally leftist. But you talked about how, no, there was a radical and even an authoritarian right in Europe. And even going all the way back to France, you had, you know, essentially the right meant for the monarchy. And there was clericalism and stuff all built into that. Could you like enlighten us a little bit on like the history of what left and right means and how that's mutated? Well, this begins basically with the French Revolution uh, and the most radical members sitting on the left. But the basic idea, of course, is that the left uh, represents a challenge to the status quo uh, and is aiming at something new uh, and opposed to certain, at least, of the main institutions and values of the status quo. And the right will tend to be the more conservative and support tradition of the status quo. You see this more clearly, uh, not just in terms of uh, contemporary affairs at any given time, but in terms of the relationship to tradition. What is the culture of a country or of a situation there? The left will challenge tradition and want to change it to the right if it's truly the right, we'll want to uphold at least certain key aspects of tradition. Now, by the time you get down to the early 20th century, it's over 100 years since the French Revolution, and uh, these things are becoming very slippery. Uh, and there are various different kinds of leftism. The original leftists were the French Jacobins, 
Now, people in the American uh, Democratic Party today might not think of the Jacobins as being terribly leftist because they, they believed in a certain kind of individualism and in private property. These are not the things encouraged, for example, by the Democratic Party the same way in the United States at the present time. And uh, by the early 20th century, these things had begun to change. What was different about the European situation compared to the American situation was that in all the European countries, you still had the continuation of tradition and certain values established churches and things like that that provided a kind of cultural and institutional framework for tradition and conservative interests down through virtually the entire first half of the 20th century, whereas the United States, by contrast, was the only country, with the exception perhaps of Australia, New England, Canada, that was born liberal. And it did not have that same kind of tradition, at least as finding tradition personified in an established church and various other direct institutional forms of tradition. So that in the United States, what becomes right or conservative in the United States will seem very liberal or even leftist by European standards back in the 20th century. Now, the great panoply of different kinds of rightist movements came in Europe in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, when enough of European tradition still remained to support right-wing interests, but now there was a great deal of radical challenge on the left and you have different kinds of, of rightist positions, none of which were held in the United States even at that time, much less at the present. Yeah, I think one of the things that I think people don't know in America is that Mussolini, for example, when Mussolini, we know that there were elections and so people go, oh, so that's a democratic country and yet at some point, Mussolini confronts the king. This happens in Spain as well. You're, you know, you talk about how there is this... People in America often think England has a queen, and that's all the monarchies there are. And one of the things that becomes very obvious when you even read a little bit about fascism is that, no, there were kings in Italy and in Spain, and there were monarchies even into the 20th century. And I think most of us sort of pick up a general sense from the history we learned that monarchies probably ended somewhere in the 1700s, and so they'd have nothing to do with... And so we don't think of European traditionalism as being fundamentally related to landedness, class, and even monarchy, because we think of tradition as the founding fathers and separated government, what would have been considered a strange, liberal, and anti-traditional view in certain ways in the continent, wouldn't it? Yes. Well, in the United States, liberalism is tradition. And therefore, the traditionalists uh, are more people like the Republicans who hold to the older kind of liberalism, which is not a, a left-wing form of liberalism. Mm -hmm. Of course, liberals in the 19th century were quite different from the way Americans think of liberals because 19th century European liberals, unlike uh, American liberals, to at least to a fair degree, uh, were opposed to democracy, made it clear they wanted to keep the vote restricted, and that liberalism could not be maintained as a progressive cause if you just allowed everybody to vote, because everything would simply go down the tubes. So to, to main maintain a situation of progress and true liberalism, you had to keep the vote restricted, and that was the case in European countries to some extent, all the way down to the time of World War I. But of course, that really didn't last very long in the United States, the only restriction was the Southern Pull Tax 
and the exclusion of black people from voting in the South, one way or the other. Uh, but uh, otherwise, uh, th those uh, conditions did not exist in the states. Mm -hmm. Because when you say restricted, you don't mean restricted from women. You mean restricted Restrict among keep, men and to be a very small number white of men. men from voting. Yes, right. keep most white men from voting for a good deal of the 19th century because that will simply eliminate the possibility of true progress and real liberalism because everything will just get out of control and degenerate. Right, right. Okay, so when... When pe so what else do you think is significantly relevant before we come into 2017? What, what, what are some of the other key ideas about fascism should we know so that we're not easily bamboozled by modern demagoguery? Well, the most important thing to begin with here is the fact that fascism was uh, what historians call an epochal phenomenon. That is, it was a characteristic of a certain uh, epoch uh, in which you had uh, an intense series of conflicts in European society about politics, about society, about economics, uh, and in which even the terms of military technology were much more open than they have been since 1945. So that you could have uh, movements of organized uh, around controlled violence that even seemed plausible to a certain extent. Uh, so it was a, a phenomenon of that particular period, <coughs> and particularly in certain countries, uh, basically countries that had new political systems, uh, countries that had established liberal, liberal democratic systems uh, were not very much attracted to fascism. Uh, but there were a lot of countries after World War I that had new systems. And it was in these new kinds of systems, in fact, that fascism did develop. Uh, and, uh, of course, the new systems involved over half of Europe after 1919. Right. Can you name a number of the countries that had, because people think fascism, they think, um, most of them think Hitler, and then they might think Mussolini. A few might know Franco, and that's about it. Yes. But well, I was surprised at the list in the book. Uh, fascism uh, varied a good deal more than communism. All the communists with only slight variations follow the model of Marxism, Leninism, the Soviet Union. So communism meant one kind of ideology, one kind of structure. Uh, <coughs> the fascist movements, uh, as extreme nationalist movements, uh, varied according to nation. The more common kind of fascism really was the Italian sort, uh, the, the rather more open, less extreme, less ultra-ultra kind of fascism. So that the, the European model well, was uh, really uh, fat Italian fascism more than Nazism. Nazism was a more extreme kind. There were some other countries that had the Nazi kind. The Nazi, what was unique about the Nazis, two things. One was the emphasis on biological race. Biological race was not an insistence of most fascist movements. Uh, there was a certain tendency, sort a, a certain kind of racism, but racism in the sense of of ethnicism, not of biological race. That, that was certainly a characteristic of the, the, the Italians, whereas the Central European German variety was more extreme on that issue, uh, therefore more extreme ideologically, but of course simply more extreme politically and in its policies. Uh, the willingness of uh, Hitler to engage in big wars, something that uh, actually uh, took Mussolini aback. Mussolini was accepted for years 
as a reasonable citizen of European affairs because Italy did not challenge other European powers. When it began to expand, it expanded in Africa, not in Europe. Uh, so these are the roughly the two major kinds of fascism, but any fascism of any significance had rather unique characteristics. Uh, in Spain, for example, the fascist movement was for a long time weak. It also was nominally orthodox Catholic, which creates enormous cognitive dissonance. meant that in Spain you couldn't really have a genuine fascism because the contradiction between Orthodox Catholicism and fascism was so great that it watered it down a great deal. Mm -hmm. In Romania, uh, the site of one of the most intense fascist movements, you have a movement that was so singular that it was almost a form of religious national messianism rather than a, a full fascism, and that was indicated by the name, which was properly the Legion of the Archangel Michael. It was also a very religious kind of fascism, but therefore, as a pseudo-Christian fascism, uh, was unable to resolve all the contradictions in its own doctrine and practice, and therefore hardly fits completely within the full fascist genus. Uh, and then you have other fascist movements, uh, for example, in, in the more Western countries, had no chance of coming to power, tended to be more moderate. Because if you're going to have fascism in England or France or Holland, you, you, you can't be as, as extreme as the Nazis, and you can hardly be as extreme as the Italians. So you have these more moderate fascist movements in Western countries, and also ones that had no chance of coming to power, and other variations in Croatia, in Hungary, various countries in East Central Europe. So that might be interesting, the Western countries, to, to our situation, like where a full-fledged, full-throated fascism wouldn't have been attractive. What, what were the characteristics of fascism in a place like Holland or England? Uh, they were somewhat similar because these were countries with established liberal and by the 1920s liberal democratic traditions. So still nationalistic, heavily nationalistic? Oh, heavily nationalistic, and of course in England in support of the empire, but uh, not biologically racist in the German sense, racist in the ethnic sense, but not in the German uh, biological sense, and uh, not even anti-Semitic. The uh, Dutch movement, in fact, never became anti-Semitic until Holland fell under German occupation. As Mussolini, until 1938, was not an anti-Semite, but in fact was a supporter of Zionism, as opposed to the British Empire and the Mediterranean. He considered that his main foe in the Mediterranean was the British Empire, and insofar as the uh, Jewish Zionists were trying to carve their own place out in Palestine, he thought that that weakened the British Empire, and he supported Zionism. Uh, the, the, Brit was, the British movement did change later on. M Mussolini was told to hand over Jews to Hitler's regime at some point. Well, this is a very he? long, complex story. Okay. Uh, Mussolini's favorite mistress was a, a very intelligent Jewish woman. Uh, so that the, the uh, Italian fascist movement, in fact, for the first 20 years was disproportionately Jewish. Uh, what I mean by being disproportionately Jewish is that when you consider the fact that Italian society had a tiny Jewish population of one-tenth of one percent, not much more than that, uh, the founders of fascism in 1919 included several Jews, which amounted to, at the first meeting, one percent. 
So that's a disproportionately Jewish group compared to the general population in Italy. Mm -hmm. And that was true of fascism all the way down to 1938 when Mussolini changed because he decided in 1938 that rather than being a rival of Hitler, which he had considered himself for 10 years, now he was going to become, he thought, an equal ally of Hitler. But since the Germans proclaimed themselves biologically, racially superior to everyone else, the Italians could not be their equal ally unless there was a new doctrine of the Italian race. That was very hard to get together out of nothing all of a sudden in 1938. But the Italian fascist ideologues did their best with that. And that meant also becoming anti-Jewish uh, and uh, also uh, sort of racially anti-Semitic. So one of the... Um one of the taxonomies that's, that you, you talk about in your book that people sometimes use for fascism is that it's identified as anti-liberal, anti-communist, anti-conservative, having a certain kind of leadership principle, using the party army, and having the goal of totalitarianism. And you said that had some strengths and weaknesses, but that generally it was, it was a fairly workable uh, but many of these characteristics, though, those are certainly characteristics of fascism, but you have considerable overlap there because mm -hmm. some communist movements have charismatic leaders. Fidel Castro is a caudillo. You see, he, mm -hmm. He's a charismatic figure for, for Cuba in, in his time. Uh, and uh, communists also organized party armies. That's how they came to power. Right. If they hadn't had a kind of a party army, they would never have made it. Are there any other Russia. are there any other made significant political movements that use the kind of like tactical citizen revoltish? One of the points you make in a number of places is that one of the reasons fascism is epochal that it comes about at a certain period of time in a certain way is because there are a lot of war veterans of World War One in society that are sort of trained, disciplined, willing to act, not fully constrained by normal moral parameters because of their actions and experiences in war. And these guys become very fundamental to creating a militarized or violent movement, right? That's right. The fascism really comes out in a certain way out of World War I. Uh, the consequences of World War I were not decisive the way the consequences of World War II were. And so when you have a drastic war like World War I, that has mobilized many millions of men, uh, but is not really fully decisive in its outcome, uh, and leaving millions of veterans uh, with a kind of militarized psychology, you have a certain kind of psychological framework for society and politics that had never existed before and did not exist again after 1945. So in, in Europe, it was really a matter of that World War I generation. Now, some analysts would say, well, later on, at least in other continents, other cultures, other parts of the world, you'll have situations more like this. That, to some extent, is the case, but even so, fascism is so uh, determined by European characteristics and by the European culture of the early 20th century that it has not been reproduced. On the other hand, if you look at the fascist negatives, the fascist antis, if you are indeed opposed to all the left, to the center, and to the right, that doesn't leave much space remaining. Uh, there are not very many movements other than fascists that are opposed to all of these. On the other hand, communists, many others always say, well, fascist is a right-wing movement. Even though the fascists rejected all the conservative parties, and they basically rejected all of even the radical right parties, 
though they did find they had to form alliances with such groups to be able to come to power and then eliminate them uh, in those few cases in which they did achieve power. Uh, there is one major characteristic of fascism which does place it on the right. It is not its economic program. It's not its social program in the broader sense, but it is the ultimate evaluation of these matters in that fascism was a movement, generally speaking, opposed to egalitarianism. And that is characteristic of rightist movements as distinct from the left and the center. It was the only major new force that was opposed to egalitarianism. And so that was a characteristic that did place fascism on the right, even though the fascists rejected all of the regular rightist movements. Uh -huh. So just to be clear for listeners, egalitarianism would be that everybody is sort of the same before the law. Men and women, people of all races, people of all classes. Class being the most important distinction in their minds, probably. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Uh, the, right. Right, uh, and this is equal before the law, or of course in terms of the left, equal in all kinds of conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, the kind of uh, objective that makes leftism ultimately impossible in human society uh, as a truly successful movement. But that, that, that's uh, another story. Now, the, okay, that, I think that brings us to maybe one of the last things we should really should talk about before we try to come to the present, and that is a lot of people will say, especially people on the American right, will say, no, if you get really specific about fascism, fascism is really a form of socialism. That it is, it is against the traditions of civil society like family, orthodox Christianity or church and so on, and that its economic program tends to be the government controlling large corporations, universal health care, the kinds of things that we associate with extreme leftism or really socialism. Um, to what extent is that fair and to what extent is that not fair? Well, that was Mussolini's own idea. He said, uh, you can't call us rightist. On the other hand, we're not merely anti-leftist to the extent that the left has anything worthwhile. We've incorporated the best ideas from the left, the center, and the right and rejected all of the ideas that are destructive or that don't work. And so what uh, fashion would typically say is, well, uh, society is an organism. Everybody has to contribute in his own role. People will not do the same thing, and they won't necessarily have the same income, but they'll all be contributing organically to the common good, and they will all be ultimately politically equal as members of the United Nation. So th there was a kind of general egalitarianism and fascism in that all, everyone was an equal part of the whole, but their place in society was not the same. And as far as international relations were concerned, fascism was radically anti-egalitarianism because all fascists tended to believe that what, to use the German term, there were Herrenvölker, uh, master races, master peoples destined to rule, and the rather inferior people. So they were particularly radically anti-egalitarian on the international level. But in terms of egalitarianism, fascists wouldn't go so far as to say that they wanted the economy to be utterly merit-based by individual merit. Because of, the, in, in a number of ways, you talk about their view of what, what, what you call corporatism or syndicalism, which I think is important for people to realize. 
when the news today in 2017 says corporatism, they mean something like large Fortune 500 companies have gotten control of the government or lawmaking stuff and the corporations are controlling the economy. But when you use the word corporatism as a, in social science and in historical science, that's a, it's not really a way of saying unions, but it's a way of saying people are in different groups put into syndicates or, or corporations of people like themselves to advocate, not quite the way we'd say unions because it would be the whole society, right? It would be all the tailors in the society and all the... Can you clarify that a little bit? Well, uh, corporatism really developed in the 19th century in European political thought and was for a long time really was a Roman Catholic uh, doctrine. And in fact, uh, forms of corporatism became really pretty much the official doctrine of the Catholic Church in the early 20th century. But the idea of corporatism was rather that you would have entities of both capital and labor coming together to work for the common good Mm-hmm. and that there would be developed institutions to allow them to negotiate and arbitrate between themselves and reach common ground and achieve common objectives so that everything would work together for the common good. And do you call that so, like social or societal corporatism? In the That's societal corporatism. And, and fascism uh, moved more in what you call state, a statist corporatism. State the, the Catholic form of corporatism was societal corporatism, which is almost like a kind of gigantic trade unionism that everybody will be organized into a trade union, they'll all bargain together. Mm-hmm. That's a very simple way of thinking of that. Whereas the fascists, also like some of the, the, the uh, authoritarian right in Europe, said, well, this is the great idea, and that's the way things should be, but you have to have some way of making this work. How do you make it work? The government is going to help everybody get together and come up with, with a common plan for the general good of everybody. So this was state corporatism. And really to the extent that there is a fascist economic program and doctrine that is more or less the same for all fascist movements, it is state corporatism. Uh, This is not socialism. This respects private property, uh, at least up to a point, though not completely, not completely because private property must be made sometimes to give way to the common good. Uh, But this ultimately, you can have a corporation and you can have businesses, but ultimately everything is inside the state and the state can tell you how to do things. Well, this was the Italian principle and something that, that, that the great majority of fascists at least would hold to one way or the other. Uh, and, and, as long uh, as your corporation plays nice according to what the state thinks, you're, it's perfectly private. But if we think you should give health care to all your employees, if we think that you should do this or that, we'll just tell you and then you'll just do it. Essentially, and this came out much more clearly in Germany that uh, already during peacetime, the Nazi state had really taken over the direction of the economy. German corporations were making lots of money with rearmament and the revival of the entire economy, but they were basically producing the sorts of things they were being instructed by the state to do, so that in the process, the German corporations, by the time of the war, had really lost all autonomy and they were being coordinated and directed, uh, not always directly, but certainly indirectly, and sometimes directly by the state. And that certainly is the general fascist tendency. So, okay, so I find all that interesting. For people that are just trying to make their way in 2017, they're looking at their news feeds, everything's fake news, Trump is a fascist, Antifa's fascists, the white supremacists are fascists, 
you know, the people at Ben and Jerry's are fascists. Like, on, like in, on, on what level is the use of the label fascist meaningful for us today? Other than is, as just a shortcut for nationalist or a shortcut for socialist or a shortcut for a, probably a better word. Is there, is there any phenomenon in human society where the right label is fascist and really not another one? There's not another better label. Not in Western society. You, you may uh, come up with a situation uh, in some other parts of the world. I think that uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq had a, a system which came very close to fascism, uh, that probably as nearly as you could have come in any part of the world in the, in the latter years of the 20th century. But in Western society, the term is absolutely useless for all purposes of political analysis. It only functions as, as a term of stigmatization, uh, as an item of political propaganda. So it's demagoguery when we use, when we call somebody a fascist, it's essentially we're just demagoguing. Essentially, that's, that's correct. I remember that Roosevelt, uh, one of Roosevelt's arguments uh, initially in 1940 for a third term was that the Republicans would take the United States to fascism. Truman said the same thing in the 1946 elections. We've won the war, but now the Republicans look like they're making a comeback. They're going to carry the United States back into some new kind of fascism. So there's a whole history of this sort of thing in and, the United States, invented by the communists in 1923. And meanwhile, I mean, didn't FDR actually write a book that was very favorably reviewed by Mussolini? I mean, well, didn't the two mutually admire each other significantly in the early years? In the beginning, in the beginning. Oh, yes, there, there, there was. Uh, Roosevelt the, sent people to Italy to study that's how Mussolini got the trains to run on time. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely correct. And the Roosevelt administration, during its first year, had a very good press in Germany as well. That changed. The German attitude uh, became more and more ambivalent and then extremely anti-American. But uh, yes, there was a sense because, you see, uh, Western political scientists and economists have often used the term in technical literature, democratic corporatism. Uh, and this is still used, for example, to, for economic policy in the Scandinavian countries, basically social democratic countries, but in which the government helps play a role in bringing capital and labor together in a democratic system in which there are democratic universal suffrage elections. So the political scientists often still in the 21st century will call that democratic corporatism. And uh, in a sense, this was what Roosevelt was beginning to try to do in the United States. And so there was some interest in fascism. Italian fascism down to 1935, see that's the third year of Roosevelt, down to 1935, had a favorable press in the United States. That's why you could go to downtown Chicago and still find a street near the center of town called Balbo Avenue. This was named after the Italian fascist minister of the Air Force who led a great flotilla of Italian seaplanes across the Atlantic ending up in Lake Michigan. 1932, they named a street after it. Uh, Italian fascism had a good press. German Nazism really never had a good press mm -hmm. in, in most quarters. Okay, so if the United States press, somebody calls Donald Trump a fascist, you could say something like, you can see some of this romantic virility talk, manliness virility talk, that's reminiscent of something Mussolini might do. You could see a, a, a return to like America first being a form of nationalism. 
and nationalism was a part of most fascist regimes. Like you, there, there would be these, but then you could talk about something less like, like Bernie Sanders and democratic socialism, and you could say, well, there's, you know, there's a certain amount of socialistic, how these things, like you could kind of move through the movements in America, and you could say, well, Antifa seems to be doing the, the citizen army thing, and we've got the white supremacists that have taken on the, the German supremacy, racial supremacy thing, and, you know, Trump is doing the virility new man thing. Um, President Obama did the, I'm neither right nor left, I'm just taking all the good ideas from everybody, Mussolini thing. Like, you can find, you can pin this tail on every donkey. That's right. And it's true a little bit, because there's, because fascists were such, such strange, new, epochal, diverse kinds of animals that there were Lot, they had lots of characteristics. And so you can cobble together five or six characteristics and pin them on anyone. You could be a fascist. I could be a fascist. We could, we're all fascists if, you play, if we're playing that game. Is that fair? Is, are, are there any movements that you're seeing that like, seem to have some legitimate desire to be fascist in any meaningful sense? Well, there are a number of such movements, which you find primarily in Europe, hardly in the United States, uh, but depending on, on what you particularly focus on, uh, what's characteristic, of course, of the last 70 years is that if a movement has some genuinely, seriously fascist characteristics, this dooms it to isolation and failure. So that the movements that have been closer to neo-fascism in Europe have in every case had to drop almost uh, every single meaningful fascist characteristic uh, in order to make themselves palatable to a broader political audience and gain more votes. So uh, the Front National in France at the present time, which draws about a quarter of the national vote, has uh, even picked up certain egalitarian and leftist characteristics to appeal more broadly to French labor and gets, in fact, its main support from French workers, uh, not from the, the broader or upper middle classes in France. So you, you find these things, but uh, uh, every time uh, you uh, uh, locate a movement that has certain specific characteristics, these are merely a sign that it's doomed to absolute futility and is not going to get anywhere because the Western world is so inoculated against this. It would only be perhaps in certain of the newer countries of the second half of the 20th century that you might find a greater kind of appeal for this sort of thing, but not in Europe. So you don't think we've had, you don't think, you know, sometimes we talk in his, there, there's situations in history where something that happened three generations before, there's this forgetting process, and you can get a fairly similar phenomenon happening again, like boom and bust in economies and debt, debt accumulations and busts and bankruptcies and so on. Like, so you don't feel like, you know, 1930 is kind of getting away from us. People who were conscious in those years or, you know, the World War II veterans, have, many of them have died off. Do you think, you really think there is still a sufficient corporate social memory of the true nature of fascism or at least a lively enough mythology about it that we're still inoculated? There is, is only a vague memory. It's not a very specific memory, uh, but it is of some use. But the other side of the equation is that everything has changed so much. The idea world, the cultural world, the, the moral values are, are, are so 
uh, different compared with uh, the post-World War I situation in Europe and any part of the Western world at the present time, uh, that you simply don't have the, the points of support, the points where, where you can really nail down anything. Mm -hmm. uh, there has been a desperate search the past 70 years for neo-fascism. This has been going on ever since the late 1940s. Been going on for 70 years. Desperate search for neo-fascism on the part of certain political scientists, uh, on the part of leftist political groups saying, ah, now we found it, here fascism is making a comeback. There have been any number of groups identified as uh, neo-fascist groups. Some of them really have had neo-fascist characteristics. But as I was saying before, if they really have had a certain number, this has guaranteed their futility. And so they pass from the scene. A, a neo-Nazi movement certainly is a neo-fascist movement. A neo-Nazi movement uh, may be a genuine neo-Nazi movement. Well, how many of them are there? They got about 50 people out for this march as against 2,000 protesters who were mobilized against them. I mean, what, what kind of menace of Nazism is that? Uh, they exist. They do exist, but they're so tiny in number. They, they uh, are just condemned to futility. They can't get anywhere. Of course, you say, well, any kind of radicalism depends on crisis conditions. No World War I, no breakdown in Russia, uh, no communism, uh, and so on. Uh, well, what kind of breakdown are you going to get to, to have a, 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 a real opportunity for a new kind of radicalism? It would have to become very extreme. The problem is that the Western world uh, now is dominated by a kind of political religion of political correctness that uh, would require a kind of massive counter-revolution to replace. It will be replaced sometime, but I think probably more, more likely over a long period of time by a kind of osmotic process, not by kind of any sort of radical overturn. But this is the sort of thing that people have been looking for for, for 70 years, and it's just not going to happen in the present situation. Okay, so so for people who are listening, it sounds like if we were going to sum, summarize all of this for the present significance, you'd be saying something like, it's good to know something about fascism. The history of it is very interesting. There are all kinds of political considerations and so on. It is not going to succeed as a shortcut to make your decisions easier in America. That's it just isn't a heuristic. It, it just isn't going to work for that. That's correct. Uh, fascism is only useful as an article of propaganda as a term of stigmatization to try to denounce someone where the only thing it tells you is if someone calls someone else a fascist, it means that he disapproves of that person yeah. and wants you to think badly of it. But that's all it tells you. Just insert mad dog and you've got basically the same content. Now, and I, I think we should clarify just in terms of human nature for our audience that um, most scholars believe that their work is of infinite present importance and that nearly all of the world can be interpreted on the brilliance of their own former writing. And what you're telling us about your life's work is, yeah, it's, it's worth studying. And what it tells us is life is way more complicated than it's as simple as you're a fascist because you're a nationalist, because you believe in larger government or smaller government or taking all the best ideas and I'm not political or whatever. It, that's never going to fix it. You're going to have to actually learn to discern between what is patriotism and what is nationalism? What is um, this, the centrality of economic freedom versus 
whether or not a certain kind of societal corporatism is warranted within government, whether you believe in separated powers and states. Those are all their own definitions. And just saying, hey, that guy's being mean to that group, that's fascism, just isn't going to help us. It's really just going to make us think clumsily and probably be attracted to people who will oversimplify things, which is which the biggest, most likely outcome for that is that we will be the simpleton idiots that the next strong man finds useful, especially if we're relatively young. The, 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 that's, all of that is, is to the point and correct. Uh, now, finally, to conclude here, what I should say is that in the 21st century, there has developed a new political phenomenon which was never absent entirely from the second half of the 20th century, but is, is uh, beginning to come to the fore some places in the 21st century, and that is the reality of a kind of nationalist populism, which you get particularly in Eastern Europe, but uh, to a lesser degree in parts of Western Europe, and to which obviously Trumpism, to the extent that anything as incoherent as Trump could possibly be called an ism, to the extent that you could define anything of that sort, uh, it is related to a kind of nationalist populism. And that's the sort of thing that has people excited nowadays, because populism uh, tends to be nationalist, uh, and uh, it is always a significantly reform movement. It really wants to change things. Whereas you can say that even some kinds of leftist parties may not want to change things that much. They merely want to make certain adjustments. Populism, when it develops, really wants to change some important things. Did you feel like President Obama was kind of a headier, m more articulate, more politically correct populist? as opposed to Trump being a more virility-focused, separationist, rebellious populist? Or would you say that Obama wouldn't have, you wouldn't have classified Obama as a populist? I, I would not classify Obama. Certainly there are certain populistic things about Obama, but this is the old business again of, of picking and choosing pretty arbitrarily what you want. Obama operated in a, a very sort of complex kind of set of political calculations mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of putting together his own kind of coalition. Uh, and uh, someone like uh, Hillary Clinton simply didn't know how to keep all these various different kinds of things in, in play at the same time. Yeah, let me, I want to hit one more thing before we, we end here and, um, and talk with some of the folks that are here with us. Um, one of the points that you make in the book um, is that there was a very strong appeal to the young in fascism in these different times. This is also true of communism as well. And um, Jonah Goldberg, a person who wrote on fascism but has written on other things, who's a political conservative, he's, he once said, I don't know why we pay so much attention to the young in this country. There is no group so notoriously and consistently wrong as the young. Is it, as just, just as a historian, as just a point of fact, is it just in fact true that some of the worst tyrants in the history of the world, especially in the 20th century, found the young very into them and found great um, encouragement from the young, great support, and even sometimes violent support from the young. 
and that to be a discerning human being, the idea that the young are for something, that even if we're young, <laughs> we, we probably should be a little careful with that idea because the young have been kind of notoriously wrong about movements. That's absolutely correct. When I was teaching uh, in a period, over a period of many years uh, and, and uh, giving a class that dealt with interwar Europe and fascism, uh, I would ask the students, what sector of German society do you think provided the highest degree of support compared to other sectors for Nazism? And they would be uncertain. I said, well, the ones just like you, the university students. Uh, and that's certainly the case. Uh, one of the things that helped make European politics so radical during the 20s and 30s was the fact that there were more young men in European society than ever before uh, in the history of the continent. And they were... As a percentage of the population, you mean? Uh, yes. Because yes, so and, many older men had died in the wars. And, right, and, and you had still had a strong birth rate mm -hmm. uh, on the eve of the war so that you had a lot of young people. And they're the most radicalizable elements. And uh, so normally if you want to determine what not to support in politics, you look at the university students, and whatever it is they're most supporting, you, you head in the other direction. <laughs> uh, that, that, you, that, the phenomenon you first see in the original Russian universities in the late 19th century, and that has tended to be the case all the way down the line. It's not true every single election, every single time, but it tends to be true in generally anyway. Yeah, you see this in Dostoevsky's novels, that some of his main antagonists philosophically that believe in like just kind of ridiculous new ideas that are terrible for humanity are often the people that are like Raskolnikov is studying in the university. He's a tutor and he's like, I think if life doesn't mean anything, I think I could just kill somebody and I think that's okay. Ivan, Dmit um uh, Alexis, yeah, Ivan de Karamazov, similarly simile that sort of atheistic view. He's a university student at the time. Dostoevsky firmly believed that about Russia. And um, anyway, yeah, I, I think that that's a point worth making. I don't mean it as a shot to the young, but just the young just haven't been through enough cycles. They're and after ignorant. you've been They're through three, four, five ignorant. cycles, yeah. you start... They're too ignorant. I mean, you, you, you can't understand something unless you have a basis for knowledge. But if you're just starting out, you have no basis for knowledge. It's really not their fault. But it is your fault if you think you know everything. If you pander to them too much. Yeah, right. Well, thanks so much for this. I hope people find this helpful. And if nothing else, I think it's just really helpful to say fascism was a special moment in time. It has lots of characteristics. Calling people fascist usually doesn't mean anything. It just means I don't like you. I disapprove of you or what you're saying. And that it's never going to be a good shortcut for us. And we're going to probably have to think a little bit better and a little bit harder than that. Thanks so much for your time. It has been my pleasure. Yeah. All right.